We have Amazon banning books. Facebook has banned over a thousand um, pages. Google is completely throttling anybody with content that they deem anti-vax. Well, I mean, I have no question that the vaccines are a problem. It's uh, incredible the way we are being railroaded into accepting the idea that the vaccines are absolutely necessary. I guess it's just because there is so much money involved, the, uh, it's a huge business. Ready to live at the higher vibrations where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw and welcome back to Vibe. Today I am taking on the single most controversial subject I ever have on this show and that is vaccines. I'm interviewing Dr. Stephanie Seneff, who I already interviewed recently on the subject of glyphosate or Roundup and 700 other herbicides that contain Roundup that are so popular in the United States. I've already interviewed her on the science around glyphosate, but today we're talking about vaccines because she's very much a deep researcher in this as well. I am going to bring Bobby Kennedy, who's an attorney and a human rights and medical freedom activist, um, on the show very soon as well. And those will be my two deep dives and interviews on the subject of vaccines. You'll get a sense in this uh, conversation in which I get pretty excited talking about um, the censorship that's going on on the World Wide Web. Um, in movies and books and information available to people and on social media, anybody at all who's speaking up about uh, children's safety issues and the revolving door of our government watchdog agencies that are supposed to watch over the pharmaceutical industry are really all the same people and the incest that's going on there and, and the problems that this is causing for vaccine safety and for good vaccine testing. And we're talking about vaccine efficacy issues. So we're digging deep here. We're going to talk to Bobby Kennedy and get his take later, but you're going to definitely get a sense of my own journey having raised four children uh, in a climate where nobody around me, friends, family, uh, physicians, were supportive of me doing anything besides what uh, the medical oligopoly dictated to me. So if you didn't hear my previous episode with Dr. Stephanie Seneff, she's amazing. She has degrees from MIT in biology and in electrical engineering and computer science. She's also an expert on artificial intelligence, but she has she has published 30 peer-reviewed journal papers, and right now she's authoring a book on the glyphosate and vaccine issues. So welcome back to The Vibe Show, Dr. Stephanie Seneff. Thank you for having me. All right, so today we're talking about vaccines. And as I told you before we started recording, I have been nervous to touch this topic, and yet it's a bigger topic than ever because of 30 different state governments in the 2019 um, legislative sessions considering whether to ban parents from being able to make choices. Medical choice is a huge issue right now. Let's let's go back to um, the whole premise. Vaccines are supposed to be, according to our standard of care doctors, 
the most important strategy for protection against infectious diseases. And CDC puts that message out, and every year they scare us that especially the elderly and the young need to get their flu shot. Do you agree with this, and why or why not? I do not. I most definitely do not. And it's been a, a migration for me as I've learned more and more about vaccines. I have continually moved in the direction of, of more and more skeptical of the um, of the value of vaccines. And I think that we are overemphasizing the beneficial aspects and we are grossly underestimating the negative aspects of vaccines. And I think if you could do a fair calculation, uh, you would see that um, the risk benefit ratio is not at all clear and that people should have the right to decide for their children uh, whether or not to vaccinate. I think that is the most crucial thing that we need to do. We need to go the other direction. Instead of having mandates, we should have recommendations. The government recommends these vaccines at these times. And then people have an option to opt out with no more than just, I don't want my child to get that vaccine. This is where I believe we need to be. Okay, but the reason I'm going to put my government hat on and say, what if I were a government official or somebody at the CDC, um, and you say people should have the right to choose which vaccines they're going to get, when they're going to get them, if they get them at all. The idea is that there's this thing called herd immunity, and so I have to sacrifice my child, <clears throat> potentially, if, if my child um, has a reaction, um, and reactions are pretty rampant, and re reactions can be life-threatening, or, uh, or you know, there are children and babies who die, even in the testing of vaccines. The, the new one by Sanofi that came out, 6-in-1, that's just been approved in the last year. Um, in the insert, it says six babies died in the testing of this uh, vaccine, and they don't even test it very much. Um, what do you think about that? That, um, you know, I have to sacrifice um, potentially the safety of my child. And now in some states, even if your child has had a massive reaction or autoimmune disease uh, or autoimmune reaction to a previous vaccine, you still can't get an exemption. What's your thought about this idea of herd immunity and that I got to sacrifice my kid for the, the greater good? Yeah, I think it's a it's a flawed argument. And in fact, I would almost say herd immune dysfunction because with vaccines, herd immunity is a, is a nice theory and it works well with natural infection, but it actually gets completely messed up with vaccines. And I will give measles as the example because right now we are in a very bad pickle with respect to measles because we've got all this last generation has been highly vaccinated. The vaccine uh, immune immunity wears off very quickly, they're finding out. And in fact, I remember a recent study that showed was very um, striking how quickly um, when they had, a, uh, it was a study where they had a group of people, they tested their immune function and it was low and they gave them a vaccine and, and the vaccine boosted it back up again. But within six months, that boost was completely gone. So we're finding, you know, we're doing, we keep on adding more and more booster shots because we're finding that the immunity is waning. What we're having now is that 20 year old women who are getting pregnant no longer have the immune function against the measles virus to be able to pass on to their children. So the people who are most vulnerable are the, are the infants from in the first year of life. Normally they get immunity from their mom, both in, in utero and through nursing, through the breast milk. And that whole system is breaking down because the vaccine is not doing its job the way the natural infection would have. And so this presents us with a real dilemma because you cannot give a measles vaccine to a pregnant woman. They, they know that that's a very bad idea. So they have no way to protect those infants. 
from uh, exposure if measles does break out uh, because of this um, flawed immune process that was in, implemented through the vaccination policy. Yeah, I think that so the measles has sort of brought it to the forefront. And of course, CDC and the big pharmaceutical conglomerate really uses it as a Trojan horse to get people very scared and getting lots of vaccines and um, multiple vaccines at one time. And of course, babies are far more at risk when it's three and even six vaccines all at once. Um, I think that that trend is That's terrifying. And also getting vaccines so early. I mean, getting the deep, uh, the hepatitis B shot at birth is just absolutely asinine. And getting a whole bunch of vaccines at two months. I mean, the, the immune system doesn't mature until the end of the first year of life. So a lot of these vaccines are being wasted. You know, they're not having any good effect. And you're pouring aluminum into the child's body. And aluminum is extremely toxic. They need the aluminum as an adjuvant to make these vaccines actually work. So they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. I mean, they don't seem to mind injecting a, a lot of toxic chemicals into the baby's body, which to me just seems horrendous. When you think about that, um, you have to really believe that the benefit you're gaining is so substantial that it's worth that kind of risk. And I personally do not, you know, with these vaccines that have a lot of aluminum or mercury in them. The flu vaccine often has mercury. They're now giving that routinely to pregnant women, which I find absolutely astonishing. And, uh, and often a mercury containing flu vaccine to a pregnant woman. That just is ridiculous. And they haven't never even studied whether the vaccines are safe during pregnancy. And yet they're now recommending them and, um, and putting pressure on pregnant women to get vaccines, which is really, really surprising. Let's back up to the hepatitis B vaccine delivered at birth. I said no to it in the hospital because let's see, is, that's um, your exposure is going to be what sexually transmitted or drug IV? Right. Okay. So, so no, no newborns are having risky sex or shooting up and you're going to lose your immunity pretty quickly. We now know. And so. Yes. It's amazing, isn't it? That, uh, that, that seems plausible. You know, the Chinese have done a lot of studies on measles and they're having a real problem with measles outbreaks these days. And uh, I've read a couple of papers from the Chinese in, in China and uh, they're showing that the, um, that the live virus, the virus that's in the, um, in the, in the air, you know, the one that's available naturally is mutating to the point where the vaccine strain's not effective anymore as a, to protect from that virus. And so um, that's another problem that we have, that we have to our, maintain uh, up-to-date versions of the vaccine with respect to the actual live virus measles that's out there. Did you read um, this year, we're recording this in 2019, this past winter with all of the media about the supposed uh, measles outbreaks, which I think still was only in the hundreds. I don't know that it really qualifies as some kind of epidemic, but there was um, the U.S. naval ship, the USS, I'm trying to think what the name of the ship was, but there was a measles outbreak on the ship and they couldn't come in. Do you know much about that? Do you want to comment on that case and what it showed us? I think we're just way too hung up on measles. Measles is actually beneficial. They've done studies. Japan did a study where they showed that people who had actually caught the live measles virus in childhood had many, many years later had protection against uh, stroke and cardiovascular disease. We don't understand you know, how these viruses are working and what they're doing. And in fact, viruses can have a beneficial effect that we don't understand. And not just measles, I think mumps, mumps virus has also been shown. Getting the infection affords protection 
against chronic disease. And, and, but uh, getting the vaccine does not. It doesn't work the same way because it's not a natural infection. So just to finish the thought on the USS, it's the USS Constitution, I think. Oh, I wish I could remember exactly. But basically, all of the people who had the outbreak who were out on the water and they were not allowed back in because they had the measles, every single one of them was va- was fully vaccinated. I mean, they, they had to be. And that shows that the vaccine is failing. And as I said, this study that was done showed that it, it, all the immunity that you gained with the vaccine was gone within six months in these people. So how can you expect it to last if you have your vaccine at the age of three and then you're 20 years old to have your child? How do you expect those uh, antibodies to still be there? We're, we're facing a really big crisis now because we've got all these young mothers who are not protecting their infants. I think this is going to really get worse and worse over time. And we can't really unravel this without a lot of pain, I think. Even if we were just to suddenly decide the vaccine isn't working, let's quit. We've now got this situation where there are all these infants that are very vulnerable because of the vaccine. Yeah, I think it's really new information. And I don't know that very many people are aware of this, that it's it's fairly new that has been very well documented that a vaccine gives you immunity if it gives you immunity for a maximum of two to five years. You just mentioned that some evidence is that that immunity, to the extent you even have it, it wears off in six months. Um, and people are unaware of that. And so once you see the documentation of that, the whole premise of um, what a vaccine is for completely falls apart. And it also casts new light that we have to kind of look back at the CDC and the World Health Organization, all of which are, you know, staffed by, and I want to ask you about, you know, the revolving door of pharmaceutical executives that, um, that seem to man the watchdog agencies, you know, so you've got the people on the watchdog agencies coming out of, you know, executives of pharma and vice versa. So it doesn't seem like a very effective system but but as you know they've claimed credit and it's what people always say they say oh well you weren't there for the time of polio and smallpox um well nobody was really there for the time of smallpox but you know we we got rid of polio you didn't know anybody in an iron lung like i did and so prevailing wisdom is especially for people over the age of 50 is that vaccines ended polio and i think that with the fact that we look back and we we now know that for decades and decades, there are millions and millions and millions of people who are not protected based on that new finding um, for those diseases, then it's not possible that polio and smallpox disappeared because of the vaccine. You want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, certainly. And in fact, I recommend a book called Dissolving Illusions uh, by Suzanne Humphreys. It's an excellent book. It was one of the first books I read on vaccines. And um, and she goes into the whole history of the polio situation. It's quite interesting because you can see, you look at uh, the polio virus actually was not uh, causing paralysis in the early days. And it, it, it tracks exactly with the rise and fall of DDT. So as DDT was used more and more, there's a lag of a few years and then you start to get this rise in this paralytic uh, response to polio. And then when the DDT was banned and it came back down again, then the per- paralysis went down as well. So it, it maps very, very well to the DDT. And, um, and of course, we, you know, we recognized DDT was toxic back in the 1960s because of Silent Spring. And, um, and it got banned. And, um, and that was really what solved the problem of uh, paralytic polio. Now we're getting paralysis actually from the vaccine itself. In India, they have, I think, more, many more cases of paralysis following the polio vaccine than they do of actual polio 
infection. You know, it's the vaccine is actually causing the very thing that it's supposed to uh, protect from. So the, the combination of the toxic chemicals in the environment working with the polio virus somehow uh, causes this paralysis effect that we see. That the, it's again, the toxic chemicals. If you could reduce the toxic chemicals, we would be much more, uh, the, the viruses would be much safer. The infection would be much safer. Yeah, I also saw, um, and I believe it was derived from CDC statistics, the arc of both polio and smallpox was on the decline, massively on the mm -hmm. decline when the vaccine was introduced. And so yes. did the vaccine get credit for something it didn't deserve at all? I suspect so. And in fact, I really wonder whether these, uh, these viruses have an actual sort of lifespan of their own, that they sort of, when they first appear... Uh, they can be very um, damaging. And then as the body, the, vac the virus and the, and the human sort of collaborate with each other to try to figure out how to make the virus less toxic in some way, uh, to the point where it just becomes sort of a mild condition over time. It's not so deadly anymore. I think there's sort of a natural progression of these viruses towards a safer form uh, that can just cause something more like a cold rather than something severe. And in fact, measles was not... Um, when I was a child, we expected to get measles. I remember it came through, there was an epidemic of it in my town. We were encouraged to make sure that we got exposed because this was gonna be an opportunity. If we waited longer, we were gonna be sicker. You wanna get it while you're young. I was in fourth grade at the time and uh, pretty much everybody in my class got it as it came through and I had a very mild case. I got a two week vacation from school, which was delightful and my siblings got it at the same time. So we had a good, a good time. Uh, none of us felt sick. We had a few spots on our stomach. It was nothing. Yeah, I had the measles too. And so did my six brothers and my sister and and the chicken pox. And of course, um, we're in this situation now where um, modern medicine wants us to believe we should be vaccinated against all those things. I have read that there are um, over 200 vaccines currently in development. And I, I was listening to a colleague's podcast where he he recently launched his podcast and he's dealing with like myths in um, medicine and health and wellness. And he interviewed someone who's a naturopathic doctor on vaccine issues. And my jaw was on the ground because this person is not at all aware of modern, uh, you know, the issues that have arisen in the last 10 years with vaccines. And this quote unquote expert that he interviewed said that people are liars who say that there's been a meteoric rise in the number of required vaccines and that it's a lie, that's a quote, a lie that that people are required to get 70, 70 doses of vaccines. So I went on the CDC's website and we will put this link in the show notes and I counted them and kind of depending on a few choices that you might make, especially with the flu vaccine, it's 68 to 70 doses. You're right. I know it's insane, isn't it? And I, it's just frightening to think about all those vaccines being poured into those young infants. Um, I think that the story is really, it relates to the 1986 law. The, uh, back, and back in the early 1980s was when uh, there were some very severe reactions to vaccines, particularly the DPT vaccine. And there were, uh, concerns that the company was going to stop manufacturing it because it was too unsafe. They were getting too many lawsuits. And so the government decided to pass a law that said that they, the vaccine makers were off the hook and that if you had an injury, you would go through a, 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 something run by the U.S. government called vaccine court. Um, instead of a normal legal path, pathway, you would go through this vaccine court. 
and the U.S. government would be the one that you would, you know, to present your case to and, and get compensated for it. And um, as a consequence, the vaccine makers are having a field day because they can turn out vaccines left and right without having done proper study. And if there is injury, they don't have to worry because they're not going to get the lawsuits. I think that is a very serious problem. I would do two things differently if I were in charge. One is to make the um, all the vaccines could be recommendations. You know, the government could decide we're going to recommend this vaccine at this time to these kids. Uh, you don't have to do it. If you don't want to, just say no. No, no questions asked. Number one. Number two is get rid of that 1986 law, completely remove it, make the vaccine manufacturers responsible. When somebody gets injured by a vaccine, they can go to court, regular court, and have a hearing, have a trial. And uh, I think if we did those two things, the whole picture with respect to the vaccines would change dramatically over time. Okay, so let me get this straight. Since the law in 1986, the government stepped in because the pharmaceutical manufacturer had so much liability for adverse reactions related to the DPT uh, vaccine, which is diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus, which is delivered all at once. That means your infant body has to mount a defense against three diseases at once, which it never has to do in any place in nature. And you're saying that in 1986 and since then, this U.S. vaccine court steps in and decides whether an injured child gets compensation and our government pays the injured child's family, not the pharmaceutical company. Am I right? That's right. In fact, the U.S. taxpayer ends up paying for it. And there's a tax levied on every vaccine that goes into a pool to support that, those costs. Okay. And how much has the vaccine court paid out just to um, vaccine injured children with autism? Oh, zero. <laughs> zero. Well, they have not paid out anything for autism. Some of the autistic kids have gotten compensated for other things that they suffer from, but they are vehement about denying that vaccines cause autism and they will fight. Uh, they will spend as much money as they need to and hire as many lawyers as possible to make sure that um, that doesn't get through. So no one has been able to get compensation in the United States. There's someone in Italy that got compensation for autism, but no one has succeeded in the United States in getting uh compensated for, for autism caused by vaccines. Okay, so the $4 billion that the American taxpayers have paid to vaccine-injured children are for a lot of different things, and none of them are autism? That's right. I mean, they know that if, if they do one, they're going to have a floodgate, and they can't let that floodgate open up. Yeah, it's kind of like how the American Dental Association will never, I've said this on record before, it will never, ever admit that mercury in your teeth causes all kinds of neurological problems and cancer because the minute it does, they'll be opening themselves up to the biggest class action lawsuit in the history of the world. So they just never will. They would never, ever do that, no matter how much evidence there is. That's right. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's interesting. These are the same thing, of course, with glyphosate itself, because um, if once the lawsuits start breaking loose on glyphosate, that's going to be uh, pretty much, I think, Bayer's downfall, I would imagine. Okay, so we've talked to you about both vaccines and glyphosate, separate issues, but kind of related. There's a lot of glyphosate in vaccines. Is that a contaminant? Yes, that's a very uh, shocking story, actually. There are two people who have tested vaccines, as far as I'm aware of, uh, Anthony Samsel and Zen Honeycutt. Zen Honeycutt is the founder of Moms Across America, which is an advocacy group uh, fighting, trying to get the message out that glyphosate is toxic. 
And uh, she ran tests on a number of different vaccines. And Anthony did pretty much the same set of vaccines independently. And both of them found glyphosate in several of the vaccines. And interestingly, there was a pattern that the ones that had the glyphosate were the ones that were live virus vaccines, as opposed to the ones that are basically adding an antigen and mixing up stuff that doesn't actually have viruses in it. So the ones that had the the potential to actually cause disease, like the MMR. The MMR has three live viruses in that vaccine. They're weakened, but they're not dead. And um, those are the ones. And the reason why I believe is because they're being nurtured on uh, nutrition. Their nutritional um, supplements that they're given in culture uh, contain uh, gelatin and fetal bovine serum. And often they're grown in, in also in eggs, you know, chicken eggs. So all three of those, the chicken egg, the bovine serum, which is the, the, the blood of a, um, of a calf or fetus, um, and, the, um, and the collagen, the gelatin, which is derived from collagen, which is taken from cows and pigs that are fed heavy doses of glyphosate in their feed, all three of those are going to most certainly, most likely be contaminated with glyphosate. And so the glyphosate is getting into the vaccine as a consequence of that. Okay, so those are contaminants. So let's just use like DPT as an example, since we've already mentioned it. Again, it's a vaccine against diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus all in one. And as I was studying uh, vaccines extensively, as I was making decisions for my four children, my first um, child who's 26 now, um, I was giving him all the vaccines on schedule and he became very, very ill, like severe autoimmune issues, major asthma. Maybe you can in a second here comment on if there's links between he had asthma, allergies, eczema, which are of course are a cluster. They were putting on all kinds of steroids, um, bronchodilators. He was in and out of hospitals, emergency rooms. He was on so many drugs. He fell below the fifth percentile. And that's really where my whole journey started that led to this place where I have this podcast and a big following and I teach them what I'm learning. Um, but I started studying and I read books that were compendiums of the literature available at the time. This is 25 years ago. And I decided that the least risky vaccine would be tetanus. But then I couldn't, it's hard to get your pediatrician to even admit that they can get it separately from diphtheria and pertussis, which were, would put my immune compromised child at great risk, I, I discovered. And tetanus, nobody gets it. Nobody dies of it over the age of 50. When, of course, and back then we didn't know that, you know, the the immunity wears off. And so I didn't really see the point of it. Like nobody dies of the tetanus vaccine alone, but your your pediatrician doesn't want to get you the tetanus vaccine alone because they don't stock it. And it's a hassle and they're not going to make any money. They need to make a certain amount of money in any one visit or else they really can't even cover their overhead. Pediatricians have like 85% overhead. And so they really need to get a certain amount of revenue out of each well baby visit and that's an issue with it but what else so we talked about contaminants there's there's the dead bacteria of three different uh infectious diseases yeah this is it's fragments it's us it's antigen the actual proteins that are from the bacteria in the tetanus okay and then what else is in it what other chemicals and adjuvants serious one right dpt has aluminum in it and aluminum is extremely neurotoxic and in fact a recent study on autism brains post-mortem by chris exley found shockingly high levels of aluminum in the autistic brains 
So I think the aluminum is accumulating in the brain in response to the, uh, you know, all the vaccines. Many of the vaccines contain aluminum and it's, um, it's a, a very strong neurotoxin. It's extremely toxic to the brain. Okay, so do you think that that's part of why we see these clusters in families where I know at least four different families where there's two, and in one case, three different children who are autistic, each of them tell me I saw the regression after the the vaccine. And people get so angry about that. And they think that, you know, people are liars for making the link between autism and vaccines. But if you're a vaccine injured um, parent, and you saw your child completely developing on schedule, and doing everything and talking and smiling and making eye contact, and they get the vaccine and all that disappears. Um, you know, it's to them, they don't really care what you think about it, right? And so, do you think right. that it, is it some kind of metabolizing aluminum thing? What's your theory yeah, about? It's definitely part of the problem for sure. And of course, the mercury as well. Both of those are very toxic. There's also formaldehyde. There's D DNA contamination found in the HPV vaccine. DNA, human DNA, is very, very, or DNA in general is very, very dangerous. And one thing that's happening, I think, is that the vaccine is causing an acute reaction at the site where the where it's injected, to the point where the cells uh, can die. Uh, so quickly they don't get a chance to do a proper shutdown. And that's when the cells will then release DNA uh, from them, them, themselves as they burst open. And that DNA, it becomes exposed. It's human DNA, your own human DNA, that's exposed uh, to the immune cells because of this um, cell dying, <coughs> dying inappropriately. And that DNA can cause things like lupus, you know, um, autoimmune diseases that are very serious because of the... Um, exposure to your DNA that has gotten loose from your cells because the cells were so badly injured by the vaccine at the site of injection. And that's a, a condition called ASIA, autoimmune syndrome induced by adjuvants. Is a, several papers have been written about that syndrome that they think may be caused in part through that mechanism. But, the actual, but they actually found DNA in um, the a in the HPV vaccine, actually in the vaccine, and that's an even more serious problem um, because that that and that's foreign DNA, so it can uh, your immune cells will be very sensitive to it. So uh, so aluminum, mercury, DNA, and of course glyphosate. Also, there have been found toxic metals. Some people in Italy have been doing research on vaccines, and they're finding several different toxic metals in the vaccines that are not supposed to be ingredients. They're not listed as ingredients, but they're apparently there as contaminants, and we're not sure how those are getting in there. But those are going to also contribute. So the vaccine, I mean, anytime you inject, it's very dangerous to inject something into the body. You really, really have to be careful uh, to minimize risk by not putting anything dangerous in that in that formulation that you're injecting into the body. I think it's extremely difficult to design a safe vaccine. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the autism thing. It's obviously a very inflammatory conversation. It's, it, gosh, you see it on Facebook and people just blowing each other up and, and very uncivil conversation, people saying things to each other that we would never say to each other face to face. It's just not... A conversation about it where where um, you know both sides come together the medical position which you know takes up the cause of these pharmaceutical companies who are making let's just talk about it are making billions of dollars on every vaccine that is released it is a for-profit industry let's just get really clear about that but in addition to autism we've got these meteoric rises in in chronic diseases and and maybe you can 
Um, tell me, is there a connection with, you know, like I said, my son was diagnosed with asthma. He was a healthy nine pound baby. I started vaccinating him and things just started to take. There's asthma, there's pans and pandas seem to be massively on the rise. There's ADHD. Um, so many autoimmune diseases. Are there studies that point to a causal link between these epidemics and vaccines? Uh, yes, in fact, uh, Dawson uh, has published, I think with collaborators, uh, papers showing uh, they looked at uh, homeschooled children in the United States and they did a survey. So it's a parent survey where they filled out forms asking them about a bunch of questions. And, uh, they, and so some of the homeschooled kids were vaccinated and some were not. And when they looked at the differences in the uh, reports of the uh, frequency of ADHD and autism and uh, um, asthma, eczema, all those different uh, childhood um, autoimmune diseases, they were much, much higher consistently in the um, vaccinated versus the unvaccinated children in this database. It was quite striking. So I think there's that, that's very strong evidence. This is something the government should have done a long time ago, is to look at the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated children and look at their um, their frequency of these different diseases. I was um, watching some content by Dr. Bob Sajak, who um, maybe you know him, but he has a PhD in special ed. He has an MBA, but he's also a pediatrician. He's a medical doctor. And he says he was the very worst of the vaccine bullies out there among doctors. He bought into it and he went hard. I personally was kicked out of a pediatrics practice when my third child was 18 months old, and I had to admit that um, not all my children were current, and they said, get out. Wow. Yeah, and but he now doesn't vaccinate his own children. He's the father of eight, and he stands out there as a lightning rod, uh, willing to apparently jeopardize his own license to speak up about... Um, the need for vaccine safety, like you do, like him, you, you've really taken on a position to speak up on behalf of children uh, that isn't very popular with a lot of people who are in a lot of different mainstream industries. Um, I think I mentioned to you when I interviewed you about glyphosate recently that I had people unfollowing me and yelling at me when I just posted a link about how uh, vaccines have 25 times more glyphosate in them um, than any kind of safe limit. And then I clicked into the Facebook pages of these people who were very upset with me. And the first six that I clicked into, and then I quit, quit clicking, they were all either pharmacists or nurses or doctors. Mm -hmm. And of course, they're, you know, they make a living uh, uh, spreading the word that uh, vaccines will help us uh, be healthy. And there are going to be people who say that I am not a good mom, that I am being irresponsible in asking that we do a better job of vaccine safety, in asking you to share what a little bit more about what the research tells us about the links to these diseases. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't believe that the best strategy or the best approach to strong immune function is vaccines, what do we need to do so that our children have stronger immune function? Because they clearly don't. We, we have a big problem. And, and Dr. Sajak said that his unimmunized patients are the healthiest, his partially immunized patients are the second healthiest, and his fully immunized patients are clearly 
um, the least healthy. And he said he could no longer deny that. And that's when he started really speaking up. So what are the better strategies to help children be healthier and have strong immune systems? First of all, I want to really congratulate that doctor for being willing to speak up. And he's got the data that we need so desperately to show the world that these vaccines are not beneficial. Hey, well, certainly organic food. I think that's number one, because in my studies of glyphosate, I believe glyphosate is disrupting the innate immune system. And we have a very powerful innate immune system that does not uh, depend upon antibodies. The whole basis of the vaccine is that it's trying to get you to develop antibodies to those specific um, antigens that are presented in the vaccine. And those antibodies then will be able to very quickly glom onto that virus if it comes your way and mark it so that the immune cells can quickly clear it. If you have a healthy immune system, you don't need antibodies. And in fact, children who are very healthy, often the vaccine doesn't take for them because they're able to clear the measles virus without having to invoke the antibody system at all because their innate immune system is so strong, they can just wipe out that virus very quickly. And so it's ironic that the kids who are the most healthy are the ones that are least likely to to pick up on the antibody that the vaccine is supposed to be delivering to, to keep them protected from future exposure. So staying healthy, I think most important is to eat a very healthy diet, stay away from processed foods, eat uh, organic whole foods, um, obviously stay away from glyphosate, and uh, also get out in the sunshine. I think that don't use sunscreen. I think sunscreen is actually protecting you from vitamin D and you're getting a major deficiency in vitamin D as a consequence of aggressive avoidance of the sun or aggressive use of sunscreen. Sunscreen actually has aluminum in it as well. And so that aluminum can absorb through the skin and contribute to your aluminum burden. Um, I think the sun is a very, very healthy resource that we are neglecting. And in fact, we are trying to actively avoid, and that is a big mistake. That will help to strengthen the immune system because of the, it'll maintain the high levels of vitamin D. Yeah, I totally agree with that. There's not much that's more correlated to strong immune function than uh, strong blood, I think blood serum levels of vitamin D. And so, and if you have a long winter and you're not in the sun, then be taking good D3 plus K. So Um, But the sun's always going to be the best source. So let me ask you a really hard question. What would you do if you were a new parent? Let's assume that you have the right in the state that you live in, but you're back to before you had your children, your children are grown now, you have grandchildren, um, and you let's assume that you have the right to sign waivers at the health department. If you sign a waiver at the health department um, as a young parent, then you're agreeing that if there's an outbreak of pertussis, um, or it's something that's communicable that they vaccinate for, that the school will contact you and you have to take your child out of school. And FYI, in 25 years of my children being in the schools, I got contacted exactly zero times mm-hmm. about outbreaks of any of those. And my children were in public schools and charter schools, all of them large. It's not like they were homeschooled or in a co-op where there was you know, much, much lower exposure. Let's, let's leave on the table options like spreading vaccines out, um, not giving three to six at a time like are doing right now. And when we see uh, infant death, um, they seem to be really highly correlated to the the three or six at a time that just seems unconscionable to do to an infant um, immune system. Um, when I was making decisions about my children 25 years ago and reading in great depth, and just because I didn't make I didn't follow the pediatrics um, 
mandates at the time does not make me an inferior parent, okay? Because people who follow the vaccine schedule love to make that argument of, you know, essentially what's implied is I'm a good parent and you're not. Um, I don't feel like that's true at all. People who opt out of or make different decisions with vaccines are not inferior parents and we love our children every bit as much as those who vaccinate do. Um, leave on the table, if you would, Dr. Seneff, doing some and skipping others. Um, what would you, what would you do? You're, you're, nobody's going to come take your kids away. They're all grown now. What do you, what do you feel like you could be comfortable saying to people making these kinds of decisions? I mean, I, I had a sort of gradual movement towards the view that vaccines are not beneficial. So taking each vaccine and considering the risk benefit ratio, I could certainly pick some that I would definitely be very afraid of, such as uh, hepatitis B, uh, D, uh, DTaP, uh, MMR, and um, the, H- the HPV vaccine for the teenagers, which I absolutely hate. I think that one's number one, don't, don't get that vaccine. Luckily, it's not mandated in most states at the moment. Um, but that one is clearly, uh, the, the risk outweigh the benefits for sure, I think, with the HPV vaccine. Uh, MMR is very dangerous because it had the highest, for one reason, because it had the highest level of glyphosate by far of any of the vaccines that were tested. And MMR has also been very strongly linked to autism. The movie Vaxxed, for example, tells the the story of Andrew Wakefield, which is a very sad story because he was on to the connection between MMR and autism back in the late 1990s. And he published a paper describing certain cases where these kids were developing fine, and then they got the MMR vaccine, and then they regressed into autism. And um, he got really shot down for having done that. He lost his ability to practice medicine in the UK, and his, uh, the paper was retracted, and he, had, he has basically been victimized. You know, we can, you, people now use the verb getting wakefielded to refer to what happened to him, and that, that gave a lesson to everybody else who might think there might be a connection between MMR and autism to basically stay silent because if they valued their career and all the time they'd spent getting educated, they were not going to take that risk. And he was identifying the, the link between the gut problems and, the, um, and autism way back then, which you know that's been denied. But now today, there are many, many papers coming out showing that the uh, autistic kids have a disrupted gut microbiome and that that is um, clearly a, a factor in their autism and the a measles virus is a live virus. It is getting into the gut and infecting the gut, causing uh, this uh, disruption of the gut microbiome, and then also causing a leaky gut barrier, a leaky brain barrier, and allowing the um, the antigens in the in the virus, the, the the proteins of the virus, to in, infiltrate into the brain. The virus itself could actually infect the brain, and uh, once the brain's immune system reacts to the virus then it, uh, it responds to the, to the proteins, particularly the hemagglutinin in the, in the measles virus with um, antibodies that can then attack the myelin sheath. This is a, I think this is a pretty clear explanation in my view for how MMR is causing autism through this molecular mimicry where the, um, the protein that the measles virus produces happens to have a peptide sequence that is very closely matched to a similar peptide sequence in myelin basic protein, which is a crucial protein in the myelin sheath, lining all the axons uh, in, the, uh, in the brain, the neurons. The, the neurons depend upon myelin to be able to communicate signals. So when you start having the immune system attacking the myelin sheath, you've got a lot of problems with the brain. So I think that's a very good explanation. More than that, it turns out glyphosate, which is in, in a contaminant in the MMR vaccine, 
actually, uh, I believe it's substituting for glycine during protein synthesis. And we talked about that in our last interview. If this is true, then it can substitute for glycines in that particular sequence in the hemagglutinin. There are actually three glycine residues within a 20 peptide sequence that matches with the myelin basic protein, both of them, the myelin basic protein and the hemagglutin both have these three highly conserved glycine residues within that sequence. If those are substituted by glyphosate, that's gonna make the measles hemagglutinin much more allergenic than it would otherwise be, much more likely to induce an overactive immune response to that protein. And there's a series of papers by Professor Singh, S-I-N-G-H, and collaborators going back to the 1990s where they showed that the autistic kids had extremely high levels of antibodies to the hemagglutinin from the measles virus in the vaccine, and that the autistic kids who had these high levels also had antibodies in the brain to the myelin basic protein. So they were like almost all of the kids, they were like 60% of the autistic kids had these elevated levels of antibodies to the measles. In other words, the vaccine took very, very well. And of those 60%, nearly all of them also had the evidence of the autoantibodies to the myelin basic protein. So this, I think, is a very good explanation for how precisely how MMR could be causing autism. Okay, you mentioned the movie Vaxxed, and I want mm -hmm. to bring that up. And you also mentioned Dr. Andrew Wakefield, who was, um, it's become a verb to get Wakefielded. And I, you know, he was hired by the US government. And then when he said that the findings didn't match with what the government slash pharmaceutical industry wanted him to say. Um, there is a concerted effort, it appears, to destroy his career and destroy his credibility. I just want to mention that Vaxxed, the movie, is no longer available. Um, it's, you know, De Niro's in it, Bobby Kennedy, who I am going to be interviewing here. Um, he's a great American hero like you are, um, speaking up and calling attention to evidence that there's a concerted effort to deep six it and eliminate it and not give people not allow people access to it. It is, um, it is being eliminated from anywhere in the public domain. So we now have Netflix banning Vaxxed and other um, films and books um, that explore vaccine safety issues and vaccine efficacy issues. We have Amazon banning books. The the two books by physicians who who review the scientific literature that I read 25 years ago, you can't buy their books anymore. Facebook has banned over a thousand um, pages for speaking up about anything to do with vaccines. Pinterest has banned everybody who has said anything about um, vaccines that isn't entirely in keeping with the medical position. Google is completely throttling anybody with content that they deem anti-vax. What do you feel when people call you anti-vax? <laughs> well, I mean, I have no question that the vaccines are a problem. And I can't, uh, I, I think the uh, children in this country are suffering greatly because of it. And uh, it's incredible the way we are being railroaded into accepting the idea that the vaccines are absolutely necessary as part of a, of a health um, program. And uh, I guess it's just because there is so much money involved, the, uh, the pediatricians make most of their money and make a lot of their money off of the vaccines. And the CDC actually has a bunch of patents, so they get money off of the vaccines. And uh, it's just, 
it's such a, of course, the industry, Merck has many, uh, many vaccines are among its uh, main uh, income in Merck, the, the company that makes, uh, for example, the HPV vaccine. They're all, um, they're all interested in getting us to accept the idea that vaccines are good. It's a huge business for the industry to get, when you have something that's mandatory, then every child in the country gets it. That is such an easy product to sell without even having to do any kind of advertising. So it's such a tremendous boon for all these uh, industries and government people to benefit from the money that they gain by virtue of having the system in place, that they are absolutely determined to make sure that it's protected. And what amazes me is that they don't mind that the children are being injured. I don't understand that, that there are human beings who don't mind that the children are being in injured by these vaccines. Yeah, the the marketing is you know, brilliant in terms of any new vaccine that comes to market, not only do you get to pretend to be a great hero across the globe by preventing disease, whether or not it's actually true, um, your market is every single human being on the planet. And so it's obviously, there's a, a rush to market. There's a lot of pressure. There's billions of dollars being spent because it's such an incredibly wealthy industry. But I just want to, you know, usually when I'm doing an interview, I don't make some kind of you know, grandstanding statement, but I just want to say this and get your reaction if you feel the same, but I reject the term anti-vax. I am for people's health. I am for children's health. I am for medical freedom. I think that word marginalizes and it gaslights us. It tries to uh, make us crazy and um, I, I don't like it. I don't like it when people say I'm anti-vax because I speak up and feel like we should be able to ask questions and that our watchdog agencies in the government should actually be watchdog agencies. How do you feel about it? No, I agree. And I think that, um, you know, we live in the land of the free, uh, supposedly, and we have freedom of speech. And, and here we are being censored in a major way. Uh, it, it doesn't fit our national um, standard for our country. You know, it really puts us in a bad light, the country itself, to be all, doing all of this censorship on information. And it, if you read the literature and the actual published papers, as I have done, uh, you can see that there are many, many uh, dangers associated with vaccination. It is not a done deal that they're so wonderful that there's you know no downside or that the number of kids that are being injured is so small that we don't need to worry about it. I mean, that is simply not true. Uh, and as I said, they're getting, they're getting more and more dangerous because they're being contaminated with these chemicals. The HPV vaccine is a very good example. That's a new vaccine introduced for teenagers. It's supposed to protect from cervical cancer, but they've never shown that it actually does. And it, the original vaccine had four different uh, strains of the HPV virus in it. And what happened was that the, those four strains, you get antibodies to those four, which then allows the remaining strains to have a field day because that their main competitors are taken out. And there's over 100 different strains of HPV. So they realized with the four, it wasn't enough because some of these other strains were becoming more prevalent and taking over and causing disease even. And even people who got vaccinated were getting cervical cancer at a very young age, which is incredibly improbable because cervical cancer is mostly a disease of the people over 50. So young people were getting cervical cancer having been vaccinated, probably because it was allowing these other strains to, to grow, which could be more toxic than the ones that they're immunizing you against. So they changed from four to nine in the recent version of the HGV vaccine, nine different strains, more than twice as much of an extremely toxic form 
of aluminum that they've put into that vaccine. So now it's even more likely to cause nasty side effects. Women are, young women are getting taken down by the HPV vaccine. There's been many deaths. There have been women who have been permanently disabled to the point where they can't get out of bed. I mean, there's a lot of stuff on the web where you can see these injuries that are happening to women getting the HPV vaccine. There's a recent study that came out that showed that women who had been vaccinated with the HPV vaccine, married women had significantly fewer pregnancies than married women who had not been vaccinated with HPV. I think the HPV vaccine is causing infertility. And we do have an epidemic in infertility today in this country. So that vaccine makes absolutely no sense to me. And I do not understand how they keep on pushing. Obviously, it's the money. I mean, Merck is making a tremendous amount of money off of that vaccine. And the sort of lovely idea that you could vaccinate against cancer. And that's so appealing to people that they want to believe it. But that vaccine is very, very dangerous. And I would not recommend for anybody to get it. So MMR, HPV, hepatitis B, and um, DPT, those are all nasty vaccines, either because of the aluminum or the glyphosate contamination or the possibility of uh, autoimmune reaction or the uh, infertility that can be caused by the HPV vaccine. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of pressure on teenagers, um, both um, lots of teenage girls, lots of parents are writing me. I think about once a week, I get somebody sending me a Facebook message saying, this is what my doctor said about why my child should get the HPV vaccine, especially before they do this or that activity or this or that travel. And so there seems to be an increasing uh, amount of pressure on parents to get it at the same time that there's just a flood of data coming in about the negative um, health consequences and even deaths and infertility. I don't know if you mentioned. I did. Infertility, yes. And actually, it's interesting because Japan actually uh, adopted the HPV, made it part of their schedule. And the Japanese were very compliant, like something like 95 percent of the of the parents got their teenagers vaccinated with HPV. They had a lot of nasty reactions and there was a lot of chatter on, on, on social media in Japan about the reactions to this vaccine and people were posting things. And as a consequence, the public got very wary of it. And the government decided to, to take away that recommendation on that because of that reaction. And so now the, the number of people in Japan that are vaccinated is down to something like 5%. So it's very quickly that they stopped vaccinating HPV so Japan is, is really setting a good uh, standard for the rest of us to think about HPV and whether we really want it. Yeah, when I was um, studying these issues 25 years ago, uh, there were very few vaccines in Japan's schedule in the first two years of life. And their SIDS rate was something like 20% of ours. And that really influenced me because Japan is a first world country. You know, we're not comparing yeah. the U.S. to you know, India or Bangladesh. And so that sort of gave me the courage to do something different than what the pediatricians are pressured to do by their by their governing boards. One last question I would like to ask you about the issues with the flu vaccine, because especially specifically talk about what is the flu vaccine for winter of 2020? How is that decision made and why should that factor into our decision to get the flu vaccine or not? P.S. I got the flu vaccine once. It was in grad school because I had to work on the Children's Union of the State Hospital and they forced me to do it or they were going to fire me and I have never been so sick. I was sick all winter and I'm a person who wow. almost never gets sick. So not a fan, but that's obviously not good research. That's just my personal experience. What, what do you know about the flu vaccine? 
I actually don't know much about what's happening in 2020, but I do know that it's been very performing very poorly in recent years. It's interesting that uh, flu seems to be becoming more and more dangerous over time as we're more and more uh, encouraging people to get the flu vaccine. Now just about so many people are getting it every year these days and they're not, um, and we're still getting lots of flu. I mean, it's like the thing is not working. I don't think it's working very well at all. I actually think that if you get the flu vaccine year after year, you're going to become less uh, resistant to the flu in terms of your natural innate ability to clear the flu. And this is the whole thing about the innate immune system versus the adaptive system. And I believe the flu vaccine is actually injuring your innate immune system and making you more susceptible to the flu. And, and in a sense, more in need of the, uh, of the vaccine antibodies to protect yourself. There was a study done in Hong Kong where they, uh, in this placebo controlled study, and the, the half the kids were um, vaccinated for the flu uh, and the other half were not. And they monitored the, them over the next year. And they found, a, I think it was a fourfold increased risk to syncytial virus among those who had been vaccinated. They were much more susceptible to another virus that has symptoms very much like the flu, but it's not the flu, flu virus. The flu, of course, has many, many different strains. And every year they try to guess which strains to put into the vaccine. And I think they're failing more and more because so many people are being vaccinated that the one that was, that's in the vaccine is gonna disappear and that's gonna allow the other ones to grow, just like what's happening with HPV. Uh, the other uh, strains get an opportunity uh, to flourish because the, one, the dominant strain is getting wiped out by the vaccine. I personally have never had a flu, flu vaccine and I intend never to get one. Well, I just don't even bring this up really, but that year that I got the flu vaccine, that winter, not long after is the first time I actually got the actual influenza and um, first and only time in my life that I ever had it. And I don't bring that up because I think people think that I believe the vaccine caused the flu. And I don't necessarily believe that, but I think you just explained the mechanism by which that might happen. But I didn't just get the flu. I got a whole bunch of things. I was sick like 10 times that whole winter. And and I think your explanation really kind of helps me understand maybe why that happened. Yeah. And for me personally, I don't remember the last time I've had the flu. I, I, I It's been decades. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think the immune system is powerful and it probably needs more nurturing than... Um, you know, machine guns firing at it. Exactly. That's a good way to say it. I totally agree with that. Eat healthy food, uh, stay away from glyphosate, get out in the sun, and you don't need vaccines. And your children don't either. They can stay healthy as well. If you have a strong immune system, you can handle these diseases. And getting the measles would not be a problem at all because it would be a very mild case and then you would have immunity for life. Well, that was a really good, like one or two sentence summary of our whole conversation here today, which has been totally fascinating. I know your time is very valuable and you've given me so much um, great information. I think my readers will really love listening to it. You are an incredible hero speaking up for safety of vaccines, more testing of vaccines. Tell us what you've got coming up that people should be following and paying attention to. Oh, well, I'm working on a book right now on glyphosate, and I do have one chapter in that book that is devoted to vaccines. And so um, that I hope that you will uh, look for that book to come out sometime next year. And uh, I, I'm hoping it'll have make a difference in helping to get the message out. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> 